I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. In this Your Truth Shared special, we listen back to a compilation of some of the amazing stories and insights shared by some of our wonderful guests. It was difficult to just select 10 moments, but this collection is a mix of advice, techniques and real life stories that hopefully will provide inspiration for you to build your own success story in the coming year. I hope you enjoy. Do you feel that your lack of consciousness about your clothes is another indication of hiding? Like that another, you know, if you look in the mirror and go, am I hiding today? You know, when we talk about visibility, am I hiding today? Like even asking that question. Yeah. And it's it's actually a great question because I'll be totally honest with you, there's days that we just want to hide and that's okay. Mm. Right. Over the pandemic, when I went into my local supermarket dressed head to toe in black, really what I was saying to the outside world is don't talk to me. And that's okay because I can't be up, I'm an extrovert kind of person, I can't be up all the time. But if you hide too much when you are trying to, let's say, if you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to get to the next level, what happens is that you're actually standing in your own way. You're creating your own obstacle. And the one thing I will say, and this is so important about showing up, there's two aspects to this. Is that if I'm an, uh, you know, starting a new business, I like to go to a bank, or I'm, I'm networking in a room. When you walk, when you're in that room, and if you are dressed appropriately, I mean dressing to feel great. No one in that room knows whether you're the CEO or you're a student. Mm. Nobody knows. You you can stand there and actually give that impression of. The other thing about, I suppose, hiding is that if you hide, you don't show up. Okay. Do not show up. If you don't show up, nothing happens. So 80% of success is showing up. And, you know, you have to want to show up. It's a bit like back to the supermarket story. The day you go down dressed absolutely like, I don't mean crap, not in your best, it's when you meet everybody. The day you go down looking half decent, it's when you want to meet everybody. So you have to want to show up. And, and if you are wearing something, I'm not talking about being fashionable, cool, all those things. If you're wearing something, that you genuinely feel good in, you will want to show up. I had an amazing, I suppose, learning curve myself before Christmas of, I went to this lady's house and she she said to me, I was there for a consultation and we were going to do a wardrobe and our colors and all of that. And she said to me, I don't want to do this. And I said, okay. So I said, why don't we just have a cup of tea? Because that seems to always solve a lot of problems. And I said, well, what is it? And she goes, look, I don't feel good about myself and I've got to be somewhere today and I'm not going. And she described to me where she, sorry, where she needed to go. And it was really important. I obviously can't share too much, but it was, it was really mm. important. So I said to her in the back of my mind, I said, I actually have to get that woman there. She needs to go. So to cut a long story short, we, I kind of forced her, <laughs> much forced her into clothes. I forced her to put on some makeup. I forced her to kind of nearly get into the car and go to this lunch. And that night I came home and I said, you know, I said to my husband, I said, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. I, I went, I crossed the line. I crossed the professional line. But she called me the next day and she said, I am so glad I showed up. Mm-hmm. I am so glad, she said. And she went in, I think someone made some nice comment to her and said, oh, that's a nice color you're wearing. And it was a small thing, a small but a big thing. And she said, I, she said, thank you. And I, and I spent the whole night worrying for Nola that I had pushed it too much. And I was presenting the next day to, um, it's actually tourism Ireland. And I put up the slide, I put up the slide. I said, 80% of success is showing up. You will only show up if you're confident to show up. And, 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 you know, she taught me such a massive lesson. And I suppose that lesson stays with me professionally in terms of the value of what I do and I'm any image consultant does. And um, because 
I never went into this for fun. It was never about clothes for me. It was always to do with self-expression and confidence because that's that's what clothes has done for me in my personal life. So it was never, if I wanted to go into this about clothes, I would have started retail years ago. I would have, it was never about that for me. So I love, it, but I love her one-liner because I need to repeat it. I'm so glad I showed up. So many people stay quiet about their passion, about their what they wish for in life, what they standing up for themselves. Yeah. And I just love how you came to this point and spoke up. Yeah. So that was the, I would say that was like the beginning of the healing where I started like, oh, wait a minute. So um, in the army, for those that don't know, you get an annual evalu evaluation called an OER. It's like a re performance report. And they always save the good ratings for the officers that are going to stay in. If you say that you're getting out of the army, they're not going to waste one of their force distribution like A's on you. They're going to give it to someone who's staying because it's going to help their career. Um, and so once... Sorry, just a question for you. Is there a limit to the amount of A's? Yeah. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It, I don't know what the system is now, but it used to be forced distribution. There was only a certain amount of A's and it stayed, that amount stayed with the raider who gave them. So like he didn't want to burn them all at one assignment either. Like it was a very weird system. And, and you know, you always knew only one of your peers or maybe two would get the top rating and the majority of people would kind of get the middle and you had to be a real dunce to get the low rating. Like that didn't happen very often, but there was a forced distribution of there was a limited number of A's. So wow. it couldn't be every officer got the A, even if they all deserved it. Yeah. So I always had that in the back of my mind. So never said I was getting out until I actually was. And at that time I dropped my paperwork. So everyone in the unit knew I was leaving. And at that point I felt there was like a weight lifted from my shoulders because I didn't have to play the game anymore for the good grade. Like I'm leaving, I'm getting the bad grade. It's assumed. And so why not just do what I want? Like, I've, you know, like, so I had about six months where I could kind of test the limits. I didn't realize that's what I was doing, but looking back, it was absolutely what I was doing. It was like, can I really be me now? Like, I don't have to, I'm still wearing the uniform and doing the job, but can I be more essentially me? And so the way that looked was you have to remember, like at the, this was like the early 2000s the army was still very male dominated. At that time, I'd only ever had one upper level female commander. And she was from that first class of women at West Point. So I knew she was tough as nails. Um, and so she actually, I remember this was at my last assignment. She showed up wearing like lipstick, red lipstick to a thing. And I was like, you can do that. Like she's so feminine. Like what I'd never had an example of leadership that was feminine. It was always, I was trying to imitate the guys. So once I drop my paperwork, I'm like, well, I'm going to just be more girly because that's kind of how I've, what I've missed. And so I started bringing fresh flowers to my office. I put a tea kettle in there so that I could have cups of tea if someone wanted to come and sit at my you know, little table that I had in my office and chat. I had um, copies of like People Magazine and Us Weekly and just, you know, just stuff that people could like look at and decompress. Yeah, it wasn't that. I think that's also important. It wasn't just to be girly. It was creating a safe space. Do you think you were doing that consciously or you just wanted to take a load off or, or did you just want to be girly? I, well, I don't know. Yes. I think I just wanted to be me. And I don't think I knew exactly what that meant, but like yeah, okay. it had been labeled girly. Right. So the flowers and the kettle and the magazines were absolutely creating a safe space, but I didn't know those words yet. I hadn't mm. taken a coaching class or a facilitation course to know that an environment could invoke different behaviors in people. I just knew I liked it. I'm like, what do I like when I go home? I like the flowers and my tea and I want to read a magazine and just kind of, ugh. so that's what I brought to the office. And then I would go to the staff meetings and I, instead of taking the little green notebook that everyone was issued, I started taking these like pink notebooks and feather pens, like ridiculous, like puffy, <laughs> really ridiculous pens. And like the commander would just shake his head and he's like, what do you got, Captain Stein? You know, and I'd go, well, this week in the personnel office and I'd, you know, give my update. Um, and what I found was, like you said, I, it created a safe space. And so all of a sudden, what had my office had been kind of, I, I didn't know, had like this invisible barrier. And so people wouldn't tell me stuff. But then once I put in flowers and a tea kettle, they couldn't stop telling me stuff. I'm like, did you guys know that this was going on? Like, 
So all of a sudden I was more tapped into what was going on. People felt safe to tell me problems that they needed addressed. And, and so the Colonel came in one day from across the hall. And you got to remember this guy still outranks me by several pay grades. Um, he comes in, he's like, I have this great idea. And he starts telling me this idea. And I said, well, he's like, what do you think? And I believe he was looking for yes, sir, great idea, but it wasn't a great idea from what I heard. And I said, well, actually, I think there's some things I would change. I do this differently and this differently. And I'm as I'm talking, I'm watching his face and his jaw is dropping and his eyes are getting wide. And all of a sudden, this little voice in the back of my head's like, hey, man, he's still like signed your paycheck. Like, you still report to this guy. Like, and I'm like, oh, my God. So I stopped talking. And there's this awkward silence. Like, I have created this really awkward silence. And I expect him to, like, come out of this silence with, like, a roar and yell at me. And instead, he quietly leans in and said, tell me more. Yeah. So it was a real, I think that was, and I didn't know it then. And I probably didn't even realize it until you said it just now. I told it this way in the TED Talk. But, like, that probably was the, oh, my gosh, I'm an asset. Like, he just, he voluntarily asked for more of my ideas. I'm not a liability, but I didn't have that going on in my head. It just was like, oh, so I just told him more of what I was thinking. And so I was super fortunate to have that. And I, I love sharing this story because I think a lot of people are still in the place where I was before I dropped my paperwork. It's like, I still got to play the game, man. I still got to get the evaluation. I still got to have a boss that signs my paycheck and likes me. And so they don't ever test the limits the way I did. But what I know is that I did it there and then I had that experience. And so when I went into my corporate jobs following the army, I was like, well, why wouldn't I do the same thing? I'm Now I'm like starting to build the same, like maybe I have valuable ideas they haven't thought of. And so I would push back more on bosses, not disrespectfully, but like from a place of, hey, I have this mm. idea that I think will make us better. And so I would say no, or have you thought about this? Or what if we did this instead? And it worked. And people in the corporate world thought I was crazy. And they're like, you can't just say no to your boss. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not saying no to be stubborn. I'm saying no, because I want us to be better. And that's different. If your product or service is designed to solve a problem, then you've got to dig under the problem to understand the frustrations, the anxiety, the pain that this problem is causing. You've got to be a mirror for who they are so they can see that you see them and understand their perspective. Because when your customers know you see them, you'll build a relationship that can transform both of you. If you stay on the surface, your results will stay on the surface. And let's face it, we can no longer make assumptions about customers. That's 1950-style customer profiling, when people are put in neat little boxes, never to peek outside of them. I often tell the story of a program I was delivering years ago, where I'm sharing with the room that they can't make assumptions about their customers, and that our customers are not one-dimensional. And so I think of the most bizarre juxtaposition of interests that they can talk about their customers. And I still remember saying, you know, your customer could be uh, like a female librarian with tattoos who bungee jumps on the weekends. And then I see a hand being raised in the room, tentatively raised in the room. And this lady, Sheila was her name. And I say, yes, Sheila, do you have a question? And she replied, no, Fanola. I just wanted to corroborate what you were saying about making assumptions. They're often made about me, you know, because you see, I am a female librarian with tattoos who bungee jumps on the weekends. And the room exploded with laughter and I was suitably chastened and I've never forgot it. So you see, when we stop making assumptions, we end up discovering new something new about our customers, something that will deepen our relationship with them and open the door to finding out more. And that's what we want, you see, a way to open the door to find out more. And when we find out more, we can serve them better. So where do we start, I hear you say. And I'm just like, start with the obvious and then just dig. You can actually start with those demographics, but you can't stop there. You keep digging 
until you get to how they feel, how they speak about their pain point, not how you translate that into your language. Because the minute you start translating what they feel into language that makes you feel comfortable, you've lost. You need their frustrations and anxieties expressed in their words. And they need to know you hear them. They don't want to be put into your nice, neat little box of assumptions about them. Give him or her a name. Now, I'm being deliberate by saying him or her. It's never them. Well, in fact, sometimes it is them these days, isn't it? And I think back to the episode that we did with Thor A. Rain. So give him or her or them a name. Just not the them that is a large group of people, the them that is their identity. So yes, we want to target more than one person. But the minute you say the collective them, you've othered your customer and you'll never get deep enough. And start to explore what a typical day is like for him or her or them. What does he or she or them face during the day? Face during the course of their day? What are the highs and the lows? And pay attention to the stuck points. Describe what happens. How do they feel? What do they want their world to look like instead of what it looks like now? What does transformation look like? And can you take them there? Sometimes we think the goal in life is to be 100% happy all of the time. No, it's not. The goal in life is to be able to manage and go through a wide range of experiences and emotions and stay connected to yourself. Even the good, the bad and the ugly. And stay connected to yourself. To yourself. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that overindulgence. So I talk about the goal in life is not that happiness thing. It is the dance between self-acceptance and self-improvement. And the self-acceptance piece is, is not just sitting back and going, right, I'm done. I've ticked on my boxes, I'm done. And or accepting your faults and failings and I'll never get better, I'll never get over this, or I'm not that kind of person and all of those limiting things. So it's the dance between accepting the where you are, what's happened in your life. You may not have ticked all the boxes or you might have ticked more boxes than you imagined and certain things might have gone your way. But here I am, here's what I've got. And then that dance between that and self-improvement. Where can I keep evolving? Where can I feel better? And it's not from a judgmental point of view, but it is that dance of, okay, what's next? Where where can I feel better about this? Or how can I improve? And I know you had a great podcast episode recently with Lucy O'Reilly, and you talked about that issue of checking in regularly with your business to sort of upgrade yourself and upgrade the software. Because you don't want to keep working on ideas and goals and ideas of success that you might have set up in your 20s and now in your 40s when certain things have happened you're still thinking you have to check in regularly and go who am I now how am I now at this age and at this stage of my life I like that who am I now how am I now but also even it comes to me to say to you it's like the goal of life is to live whatever that may bring even if it's really uncomfortable yeah. And also this idea of when you talked about the ticking of the boxes, I'm like, why do we have so many boxes that have to be ticked? I'm like, mm. why do we need them? Oh. And that's really conditioning, isn't it? Do you think that's a Western philosophy versus that Eastern philosophy? I loved what that guy said to you. It's really that expectation of happiness. Like, yeah, it's a re- good, really interesting reframe. And if I could sum up so much of what my coaching does, I say I work now mostly with women in midlife. And a lot of it is just going, okay, if you were to recheck in, which is exactly what we do, and go, what's important to you now, having lived 20, 30 years from when you set that checklist up? And you know, we do. I see it. I have a a child turning 18 in a couple of months. I'm starting to see the boxes she's setting up that will be, I guess, the marker of her success. So for many of us, you know, for women that can be, you know, for me, it was traveling, building a career, possibly getting a house and a partner, possibly a family, you know, a decent bra. Women spend 30 years trying to find that, you know, you get your checklist. <laughs> and um, 
I got a new bra last week. I was so happy. <laughs> right. yeah. um, it's honestly, it's the little things in life now. Um, but yeah. it is understanding that you have to regularly check in with those checklists to go, is that what's really important to me now that I've loved and lost and lived and laughed and learned and all the L's? Um, you know, because we are, you said in the introduction, and it's such an important word, evolution and evolving. And I think sometimes we get to a point where we think, oh, I've, I've grown up now. Um, I've che checked my boxes. I've arrived at the age of 35. I've done what I said that I do on the tin. Oh my God, that's only when you start, really. You, you've got to evolve and change, grow. And I really genuinely hope when I'm 93, I'm going, oh, that's interesting, Alana. Why did you think that? That's an in Where did that thought come? How did that behave? I hope I'm still curious. That is part of my mission. It's shattering the taboo of menopause. And a huge part of that is the shame that engulfs menopause. And I think the majority of women will say that, that there is such shame attributed to menopause. And certainly there has been in the past. So I think... What, what's the shame? Why is I, there shame? I think it's, I think it's because... We, these are things we don't discuss. We don't, like if you go back to, you know, say my generation growing up even, periods weren't discussed. The menstrual cycle wasn't discussed. I was given a book under my pillow. You know, sexual health wasn't discussed. Sex was mm. a taboo. You know, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of topics that we talk about now that weren't openly discussed when I was growing up or, you know, certainly not in my mother's generation. And I think, there's intergenerational shame too that comes down in many different guises through generations. And and menopause is is one key area of that. But what's the shame? What are we ashamed of? The fact that we can't bear children anymore? Is it, what's the shame? I think the shame, the aging is massive. I think the fact okay. that, you know, all of a sudden there is this, there's, there is the, the menopause old, the thought. Yeah. menopause you're old menopause you're off the shelf menopause you're sell by date and that's not the case at all I mean we know that now like your 50s you know you have another 50 to go if if all goes well so mm. it, that's certainly the age part of it is huge and the other part of it is is it, it still is a private personal topic and mm. so the and if you look at many of those symptoms there's a lot of symptoms women will really struggle to talk about and they associate shame around that. We talk about vaginal dryness, if we talk about libido issues, if we talk about urinary issues, if we talk about how we feel psychologically, there's a lot of complexity in many of the symptoms of menopause. And a lot of them have been linked, particularly, Fanola, in our history too, intergenerationally. There's a lot of that linked with shame as well. So it's, it, th there's, to me, it's kind of, um, uh, there's a lot of layers to menopause, I would say. And I think really your experience of it is always for every person is going to be very, very individual. So based on your own life experience, your, your own, you know, events that have happened to you in your life, your actual experience of menopause is going to be very different. And for some people, it may be more associated with shame than others are that's how we think about it and when you when you silence discussion on a topic you nearly make it a shameful topic because you're not openly discussing it you know so like even I know it's fantastic we're talking about it so much now but it'll take generations to really turn the the the, the tide around yes we're making progress but for real change that menopause is as normal as pregnancy that's the, there's there's a lot of years yet for that to happen can we clarify for everyone just the terms of perimenopause menopause what are the terms and what are the differences so perimenopause is basically to me i always say it's all about perimenopause because that's where it all starts. That's where the decline in the hormones starts to happen. The average age of perimenopause is 45. Now, some women can start perimenopause and they may not notice anything. The symptoms can be so subtle that they don't notice. But for others, 
it's those subtle symptoms start to build up over time. And that's what leads then to the culmination of the symptoms. And so the average age is 45. The average age of menopause is 51. And that simply is the anniversary of 12 months without a cycle. That's all it means. That's all it means. That's all it means. So, and this is where there's a lot of confusion there because many times people will think menopause is a whole series of years, whereas in actual fact, it's the anniversary of 12 months. That's all it is, 12 months without a cycle. And then it's post-menopause. And post-menopause can equally be as important as perimenopause because the symptoms can still continue into post-menopause. It doesn't just end because, you know, you've hit menopause. Oh, yay, you know, the party's over. My cycles are finished. The symptoms all go away. They don't. The symptoms will start to taper off in the early post-menopause years. And post-menopause is the rest of your life, but you will have a, a period of time where the symptoms will still be quite acute. Thanks for explaining. It's really good. Um, the other thing that's really interesting is this whole subtle symptom thing, because I think that we've been conditioned to think that we watch for the hot flushes and you might never get those. I ne- I haven't gotten them. So I was like, so I go a lot of you haven't either. No, no. Yeah. Um, that, you see, this is where menopause, I always say it's like the iceberg analogy. There's some of the symptoms we see above the surface, like the hot flushes, like the night sweats. But there's so much more that's happening beneath the surface that you just don't see. So you don't see, you know, for most parts, you don't see when somebody is really anxious. You don't see when somebody maybe is, is experiencing a really low mood. You might, you won't see, you know, when someone has low libido. You won't see when, you know, someone is struggling with mood changes and feelings of frustration and rage, etc. They're the parts of uh, menopause that you can't see from the outside. It's only kind of by talking with someone and understanding the wide variety of symptoms of menopause that you can really get an understanding for how deep it is. Uh, it, to me, it's a deeply psychological chapter in a person's life. I look back now and I have done some ridiculous things. And I think it's only because I tried. And because, and, I, and again, I say this with absolute humility, but it is the absolute truth. I'm bad at everything. And that is a blessing, right? I think some people are naturally good. So when they're bad, they they almost want to give up because they're like, well, why aren't I good at this? But I'm bad at everything when I started. So I assume it's always going to be hard. That my only way of winning, inverted commas for those that aren't seeing this, is by keep trying. It is by going, if, if I can do this thing over and over and over for a long enough period, the chances of me doing well at some point are very high. And I'm like, well, that's that's how the universe works. So that's all I'm going to do. I'm just going to keep trying for a long enough period of time that I will eventually work it out. And I remember reading a quote by Albert Einstein who said, no one would think I was smart if they realized how long I sit with a problem. And I think that's it. I think it's it's this... I, and maybe you're right. Maybe it is the lack of education. You kind of think to yourself, well, I haven't got any other options. If I don't work it out, I'm, it's, no one's going to work it out for me. I, I don't sense that. I sense it's that you have, that you're not scared by the blank page. Oh, no. Yeah, I'm definitely not. Definitely not. There's a, a, a great um, Tim Ferriss quote, which is one of my mentors. Has anyone in the history of time less clever or stupider than you worked this out? Because hmm. if they have, then you can't. Yeah. I love it. One of the things we, one of the questions I asked you because you inspired the questions, I have to say, is what, what do you feel are the reasons that people don't succeed? Okay. So number one, which is something we, we shared that I experienced recently for the first time ever, which is imposter syndrome. I think there can be a part of you, especially as a woman, women have uh, confidence issues in, in numbers, talking about just statistically, not gender specific. Um, but statistically, a man will put his hand up and try for things that he is in no way, shape or form should be trying for. And a woman will think, I will wait until I am better equipped. The, the idea is very different. There's almost this this acceptance that a, a man can be a learner and then become an expert or is just an expert just because he says he is. Whereas a woman feels like she has to earn that status or that role of expert. There's, there's definitely the stronger imposter syndrome. 
It's called conditioning. <laughs> conditioning. Yes, I believe that. I, th- I think you're 100% right. I did a talk for Leeds Beckett University called The New Agenda. And it was about it was about exactly that. And so many women got up and said, we were conditioned to be like this. My brother wasn't. He was told to go off and do anything he wanted where I was told, this is my role. This is what can be done and what can't be done. Um, I think that's one of the things. I think it's very, very hard when the voice inside your head, forget about social standards, tells you you can't do something and you shouldn't do something and you're not an expert. And then, by the way, let me help with this. Two things. The first is the definition of expert is someone that knows more than the people in the space with them. Hence, an expert jury or an expert on a jury stand or a witness, expert witness, is someone that just knows more than the jury. That's it. That's all they have to do. They don't have to be a world expert or do a certain amount of years or a certain amount of hours. They just have to know more than the jury that sits behind them. So for most of us, Mm -hmm. we're an expert in our field simply by being in our field for more than 20 hours because most people wouldn't have been in our field for 20 hours or more. And there's a whole talk on that on TED, so have have a listen. The second thing that I think happens is conditioning. I think Jerome famously said, you are the average of the five people. MIT did a study and found that if five people won't be different by more than 10% in their salaries and earnings, we socialize. It's, it's part of being a homonym, right? We, we are hominoid. We get together in groups and we become part of the group. And to fit in, we don't take as many chances because the lizard brain or whatever it is says you can't take a chance because you'll be kicked out of the cave. And then you're out there fighting against the woolly mammoth. And we don't want that. We don't want to take the chance. And I think lastly, the third biggest reason that people don't take enough chances is just fear to look stupid in front of their peers, their family, and people on the internet that they think care about them. But let me tell you the greatest thing about getting old, and I am getting old, is you learn the 20, 40, 60 rule. At 20, you think everyone is thinking about you and talking about you. At 40, you realize that no one cares to talk about you. And at 60, you don't care if anyone talks about you. Mm. And that is a massive thing. And I think that's why we see so many entrepreneurs at 40 suddenly take massive chances. People Mm. that never took chances in their life suddenly have this thing because they just realize no one is thinking about me. No one is worrying about me. The queen was one of the most incredible people in the world. She had done phenomenal things in history. It hasn't even been a year I haven't heard a single conversation about the Queen. No one's thinking about mm. it. People just on built into our genetics. I love this story that Dan shared the, last week with us, which was you were asking people to uh, read the book. You're w- one guy to read a book, and he had no time. He was going to, and then you asked him. You you tell you tell the story, Dan. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Oh yes, um, a, a really great friend of mine is not a reader, and but he, he knew I was writing this book and he said to me, how can I help you? I said, well, I, I need people to read it for a review. He said, I can totally do that. In a two-week window, the Thursday before the Monday it was due, he sends me a frantic email and he says, Dan, I'm not going to be able to read the book. What, what can I do? I said, look, just read one chapter. And the way I wrote the book, I, there's a flow chart. You can pick a chapter you like. There's 30-second summaries. You can say it's the best chapter you read. No one has to know it was the only chapter you read. He goes, oh, great, thanks. The Monday, he sends an email. Here's my review. And he said, I read the whole thing. I couldn't put it down. I could hear your voice in my head, you know, and in your, it just was great. And that was a really powerful thing for me because he's not a reader. I don't think he's ever read a book in one sitting, and which is what he probably had to do in order to finish it in the time. I mean given that he's not a fast reader and all that. So that that was a really great, you know, validation for me. And I'm going to go back to something Deb said, you know, about the writer has responsibility to help the reader out. I know most of you have been in a session where someone puts up a slide and says, oh, I'm sorry, this next chart's a bit of an eye chart. And what that says to me is, I'm sorry, I didn't value your time. I just threw everything I had on one slide. I hope you can see what I was saying. And that's not fair to the to someone in the audience, not someone t- fair to a reader. Make it easy for them. Fantastic. Emma, you have this also lovely story. I'm just going to flip to this idea of the one reader. And when we think about the one reader, the amount of work that Debs has us do to define the personality, the pain points of that one reader that you're trying to help. You've recently had a, some testimonials back from people who've read your book the first draft of your book, which is not yet published. And it was like 
I'll let you s- share, please. Yeah, so um, it was someone who who'd just come on one of my courses and um, she just said, oh, I'm, she was finishing her PhD, wasn't quite sure what to do. Can we have a quick phone call? So we had a quick phone call. And then at the end I said, look, I've got this draft of a book. I think there's some useful stuff in there, but it is a draft. So I, I completely covered it in caveats, completely. Um, uh, if it's useful, you know, um, so much better. Have a read. And she came back and she went, I really resonated with everything on page six, which is a list of reasons you might be unsettled in academia because it's about leaving academia. And um, she was just, I had written the book for her. My one reader wasn't her, um, but it was someone in that position who I can just say, look, this is um, this is for you. So she was very promptly asked for an endorsement as well. So with her kind feedback. How did you feel knowing uh, that you'd amazing. nailed it? Because it had made it had made the difference for that that one person, and to some extent, brilliant. You know, kind of if if it makes a difference to one person's career, that's amazing. Talk to me about flow and how I talk about flow a lot, but talk to me about flow in the context of Lego Serious Play. I mean, there are so many people that know so much more about flow than I do. But it does seem that... that You're witnessing it. Sorry? I'm witnessing it, yes. And I'm definitely witnessing it. And and I'm also, I hope, harnessing it. Because we there seems to be a lot of flow experiences. And there are micro flow experiences, and there are team flow experiences, there's long flow experiences. But it seems that our participants really have this deep, flow experience. And it's both on an individual level and, and there are some really beautiful team flow experiences where they're building collectively. But this balance between uh, perceived difficulty of a challenge and our perceived skills, that coming together and then being stretched and this, the dissolvement of time, right? They're, they, they, they're gone. So they're asked this question and I'm back to this question where they don't know the answer, right? So they're thrown out a little bit of flow, but not more, you know, the flow corridor, but we tend to be, but we want to throw ourselves out of it in order to grow. So they've asked this question, they don't, where they don't fully know the answer, but they want to know the answer. I think the key thing is you ask them a question where where they go like, I don't know, but I wish I did, right? I wish I did. So they're out of flow, but the, the desire to grow because the facilitator has scaffolded them with emotionally attractive examples like competences, skills, and values. Now they need then this thing that helps them grow. That's their, and that's where they start building and making sense of it. Now, th- this, this requires silence, of course. So, to, so they're not disturbing themselves. They're not interrupting themselves. Right? So phones are gone. The room is sufficiently quiet. There might be a little bit of background music, just almost like holding the space for them so that they 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 go deep into this and they build the complete track of time. And then all of a sudden they look up and they're like, what? what did I build? And then this, sometimes they don't even think they know the story when they start talking. And then they do. Of course they do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so... so so those are that's fantastic. It, yeah, it's really fun. And sometimes you go like, so this was 12, 15 minutes and, and they look up and they go, no, it wasn't. You said something, you said something to me earlier about they, about that they never thought like this before or were heard like this before. Tell me more. Yeah. But I, I think I think I might have said both. Uh, but I, I, let, let's let's the, the hurt hurt one. I think for a lot of people is is really wow. Because what happens after they go like, oh, I didn't know I knew this and, and that inside, and then they realize that people are listening to them. And, and 
Now, I, I, I am a great believer of meanings. Um, I, I think when people say we have too many meetings, I, I think they're saying the wrong thing. I think they have too bad meetings. Because if we are truly knowledge companies, then meetings must be the key production mm, unit. Yeah. Right? Um, but I don't think, I think most people are used to meetings where nobody is listening to them. Everybody's talking, but there's no real listening. I think it was Peter Singy, one of these, or Miss Cohort, that once said that most people confuse dialogue with two-way monologue. And I think most meetings are two-way monologues or multi-way monologues. But dialogues actually requires that you're listening to people. So I think many people in the first day of the workshop are shocked when they realize that when they're talking, people are actually listening to them. And that is also a, a, a big sort of, well, I was heard. And that, so we, we saw about 100, 100 meetings. So that means that everybody's participating all the time. That doesn't mean everybody's talking at the same time. But to truly listen to someone actually requires your participation. So can you share, uh, Frank, what what has it done for your business being a member of the RISE community or a community like this? I think it, it provides, as you said, a very kind of safe environment and it provides a bit of security about the future because traditionally I would be, I would, I would have been a very kind of look, stick with what's working, you know, the new things, let them become established and maybe then move into them. Um, and I think things are moving so quickly now that we can't afford to do that anymore. I can't afford to do that anymore. Things are going to change. Things are going to look just drastically different in the next couple of years. And trying to figure all that out on your own is, it, it's impossible, really. Um, and so having a community that we can discuss these things, that I know that I'm keeping an eye on what's coming down the line, that um, it's not just my kind of, oh, well, you know, that'll never work or this will never work or, or oh, this is definitely the, the thing to bet, to, you know, to, to bet everything on. Having a community to actually get a broader spectrum and, and have that kind of shared vision of, well, where is all this going is, uh, I think, just invaluable. Fantastic. Thanks. Yuri? By being in a community, it gives you the opportunity, like I said, to try out stuff, like, you know, to start organizing mm. these events in the metaverse, to start sharing ideas and see how people would react on that, to start, you know, um, starting a survey and getting answers for people within the community, but also from outside the community and see what, what is happening within Web3, what are the possibilities so like when I joined the community, the Rise community, I was doing stuff in social media marketing. That was my thing at that moment. But then I met Mark, I met the community. I said, okay, Web3 is my thing. So I need to spend time in Web3. I need to learn it. And so the community was a place to help me, you know, put things into practice and to learn way faster than wh what I could have done by just researching stuff. So as Frank already mentioned, I think it's just tie out stuff and see what happens and learn in that way. So for me, it was a really, yeah, it really moved a lot <laughs> in my professional business, but it also give, gave me the confidence to do stuff. Because by doing those metaverse events and sharing that on LinkedIn and on other places, People noticed me and they asked me, can you do the same stuff for us? Or what are you doing? Can you help us? So it builds also the personal brand in that way. And because I had chosen the direction to go to Web3, the Rise community helped me uh, yeah, to, to go further down that path. Fantastic, Yuri. Thank you. Thank you. Kami. Yeah, so I'm going to echo what Yuri just said, because I think that the the benefit of serving a community the way that we are is that the community then knows what your talents are, what your what your gifts are, your giftings. And I know theirs, too. So I I don't I haven't done a lot of business with um, risers yet. I do think that that's what will happen, you know, because now we know what each other does and we know who to who to refer <laughs> when somebody asks for something. And so that's helpful. 
um, to have an entire, you know, marketing basket, if you want to call it, you know, when people ask me and people do like, who do you know that does this or that, Um, you know, and that's really Mm. critical. Also, um, from the AI perspective, because that's sort of where I'm leaning into, I'm leaning into the artificial intelligence side of things at the moment. And so I'm doing a lot of training of current marketing and PR um, coaches and consultants on how to use it appropriately for their businesses and not to be afraid of it because it's saying they're saying it's going to replace us, right? We're losing our jobs and all that. And so I've already gotten three speaking gigs from that. Um, I'm going to be speaking at the PRSA Icon International Conference in October. Um, There is a really cool group of PR practitioners all over the country in the United States that have uh, meet once a year, and they've already asked me to come and speak at their event. And so a lot of people are going to get to know me and understand that I understand how to use AI. And I know I'm going to get business from that. That's just, I've done this before with social media with all that. I've been through all of these different revolutions. Um, and that's how you do it. You get ahead and then you reach behind you and you teach, teach, you, you learn and teach. And that's kind of how I uh, approach all these things. You told me, you shared a story of guys who would have been in your peer groups, like leaders in this space of the story of the guy who says, I just made a hundred million dollars, but I just can't stand to be with myself. This, this, and you shared also that this is kind of the norm at this level, this because this is an old way of doing business. Uh, yeah, uh, it's not old, you know, actually. <laughs> it, yeah, it's not old. Yeah, and it's it's not always, but it's way too common. It's way okay. too common. Um, you know, I had another, I have another colleague and and dear friend of mine who um, sold his business. Um, you know, made himself made mid eight figures, um, got divorced, lost his father and, um, you know, came right to the edge of suicide and to watch him go through that, even though he had everything he'd always wanted sort of, (laughs) um, and to turn to, um, you know, um, sex and drugs and alcohol and all these pieces to fill in the gaps, even though he had quote made it, and walked away with the money and had multiple houses and was traveling to every amazing beach in Africa. Um, it didn't mean anything. And all of his self-worth was tied up in something he never closed out with his dad and whatever he was still attached to in his marriage that ended and who he thought he was in his business that he was no longer part of, he sold out of. Um, and yet he forgot that he was just himself and he never loved him you told a story of your friend of this friend of yours 20 year long friendship and you were excited about your book mm. and you wanted him to read the book and what did he say yeah so this is this is actually before the book was finished being written it was in the middle of it i was i was having dinner with him hadn't seen him in forever and really successful guy, uh, great family. I've known him since college, so over 20 years. And um, as, as I was describing to him what uh, the outline and where I was at and my journey to date, you know, he looked at me and he goes, Brent, I, I'm going to read your book because I'm your friend, but I, man, I don't want to. <laughs> I just, it floored me. I just, I, I sat back in the chair. I was like, what do, you, what do you mean? And he goes, you know, I like my life. I like my wife. I love my kids. I'm comfortable in my job. I get to golf. It's just easy. And I said, I get that. And he goes, you know, I feel like if I read your book, I might find out that I'm a asshole alcoholic narcissist. And I don't want that. <laughs> That's that the interesting for well, well, my response to you at the time was probably because perhaps he is, but then also perhaps he isn't. That's the other option as well. But why like and this to to get to a next level and to realize that we have choice. This idea of choosing, actually realizing that you have choice, that's huge. But this idea of why don't people look? 
why why do you not why do they not want to read that book why do they not want to go in and you said because they're scared and i said well what are they scared of you, you know there's books out there actually called the work yeah <laughs> because going on this journey and doing this it's work yeah um I had a friend of mine who, um, he's done quite a bit of work, but he's never done any sort of like real inner journey work, whether that's through, um, for him, it was plant medicine he'd never done before. Other people, I mean, breath work, and there's there's other ways that don't require some sort of uh, medicine or drug to get there. But um, for him, he really wanted to finally do some psilocybin, especially with all the the studies and whatnot that have been done here in the U.S. and um, other countries. So I helped lead him through a, a, a journey on that. And he came through and he's like, I had no idea until now the amount of work that now lays ahead of me if I'm mm-hmm. going to use this in the most positive way. He's like... I, I feel like I have to take a two-week vacation just to start doing this work. Like there's so much self-exploration. Now that I understand that I can be curious, I can open these doors, I can start to look at my life differently. I have to restructure things mentally so I can show up differently. And that takes work. It takes work to unwind who we think we are because we've told everybody that's who we are. And it fe- and it's actually easy, but it feels like so hard. I've got to go tell everybody in my life that that's not who I am anymore. <laughs> it's like, you don't. You just got to show up and be different. But it feels that way. But when you say that like that, I think that would scare the living hell out of everybody. Hmm. Why would you? Hmm. Because you can sleep at night and you can look in the mirror and smile. And you don't need to fall asleep with a glass of whiskey or, or wine. And you can actually show up not only present for yourself, but for everybody in your life. And for me, when I started doing that for my family is when (laughs) it's like, this is all worth it. Like Mm -hmm. things came out, conversations happened. Trust was built in ways that I just was never able to do it before. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Reach out and let me know what your favorite episodes have been so far. Or if there's anyone you'd love to recommend that I speak with on the show, do reach out and tell me why too. And if you'd like to support the show, please follow or subscribe on your chosen platform and share it with your friends or someone you think it might help. And wishing you an amazing end to 2023. And we'll see you back here in 2024.